0: For Aerosmith, the period from their formation through 1972 could best be described as the grind. Joey Kramer knew the group faced challenges when he succinctly told the Boston Herald in 1973, there are bands that are really terrible that are making a million dollars. There are bands that are really good that are making no money. It's all a matter of chance. No matter how good you are, you have to be lucky to a certain extent. So, let's travel back through time to the genesis of the band. Clones of the Stones were heirs apparent to Jim Morrison or a Neo-Dead End Kids. It ultimately matters not a damn, a half century of music stands as solid testament to a Boston group that became America's band. In popular culture, the Dead End Kids were a group of menacing New York City Street kids. Punks, in other words, though that term would be appropriated for a style of music that had emerged from the garages of disaffected youths in the late 60s. Early acts wearing the label, willingly or not, included the MC5 and Iggy and the Stooges, with the latter particularly having taken inspiration from the Stones, but transformed it to the point of being nearly unrecognizable, apart from a few unfortunate physical analogs. Where the nihilism of the velvet underground broke from direct connections with the Warholian art scene, the emerging glitter movement of the early 70s was firmly rooted in style, performance, and attitude not always translating into quality. Aerosmith's goals were simple, to get off playing music and to get people off to their playing. Though Joe Perry also wanted to play loud, pushing the levels until he could see the sonic waves, much to the chagrin of Steven Tyler. The battles were present from the beginning, and conflict and tension fueled Aerosmith to the heights of stardom and popularity while slowly poisoning the band's very soul. At the time Aerosmith were signed to Columbia by Clive Davis in 1972, few outside of a regional diehard following would have known anything about them, or much less cared. They were barely a Boston band either. The genre of the sort of music represented was dominated by the Rolling Stones, who had then recently released Exile on Main Street, the zenith of a string of highly acclaimed albums. While response was more mixed after the heights of Sticky Fingers, Let It Bleed, and Baker's Banquet, the band was firmly entrenched in Make a Stardom, rivaled only by the likes of the Who and Led Zeppelin. Had the members of Aerosmith paid more attention to that album and its successors, then they might have taken warning and had a vastly different history. Regardless, the individual influences of the band members contributed to the whole and out of that conglomeration, something special was born. The New York Dolls tried to capture that trip, only to burn out young and wasted, having enjoyed more hype than substance and not translating the press into commercial success. At least they looked good while enjoying the attention and reveling in the critical acclaim from a pen, only occasionally delivering an exceptional performance. Aerosmith, though, did it the hard way. Born in New York City in 1948, Stephen Talarico had become something of a bohemian by the time he reached his teens and was living on the attic floor of his parents' home in Yonkers during the school year while spending summers in the country. It was the best of two worlds. His father, Victor, was a professional musician formally trained at Juilliard's Institute of Musical Art, teaching at the private Foxwood School and later at Cardinal Spellman High School. Due to his father's vocation and passion, music was a constant in his life, so it's hardly surprising he'd follow a similar path. Stephen recalled in the Walk This Way autobiography, I grew up under my father's piano. I'd sit under his big Steinway and play games and pretend things while listening to him practice for two hours every day. So, I was literally immersed in Debussy, Chopin, and Liszt. That's where I got this emotional thing I have with music. My father was a schooled musician who was very much into technique. He'd play a Beethoven sonata in the living room, and I'd almost stop breathing. So, I got all my emotions and feelings through music, which gives off twice the emotions and feelings of any other art form. Music was part of Stephen's DNA. His paternal grandfather was a cellist who emigrated from the Calabrian region of Italy and worked with orchestras and ballroom bands. His grandmother had also taught piano. While his parents didn't approve of the sort of music Stephen liked, his mother, the former Susan Blancha, encouraged his pursuit. It wasn't long before Stephen was playing drums in his father's band at Torrico. Located in Sunapee in New Hampshire, Torrico started out in 1935, appropriately, as a music camp for children opened by his grandmother. By the 1940s it had become more of a summer getaway resort, with bands entertaining those escaping the cities. Victor recalled a less than enthusiastic Stephen playing in his band, telling the Orlando Sentinel in 1996, for him, it was ho-hum stuff. He yawned through two summers of that. A hyperactive child, Stephen was involved in mischief from the time he could walk, which coupled with a direct but oft-mercurial attitude, would become perfect characteristics for a rock and roller. In the country, during the summers, it led to a life in the woods and surroundings as a free spirit after chores were completed. In the city, well, that proved more of a challenge. His father had already tried, unsuccessfully, to teach him piano properly, and it took the drumming records of Sandy Nelson to really capture Stephen's attention. He was hooked, and Let There Be Drums could almost be a theme for Stephen's Green Mountain Boys. His first flirtations with performing came with childhood friend Raymond Tabano, he lived the next block over. Stephen started out on guitar, but switched to drums so that he could also play with his father's band at Torrico. Raymond recalled, when we were thirteen or fourteen years old Stephen played the guitar, and I played the drums. My real father worked at some bar down on Morris Park Avenue, so we would go down there, and we would do cotton fields, the cotton song, summertime, and stuff like that. After taking lessons at Westchester Workshop Drums Unlimited in nearby M. T. Vernon, Stephen spent the summers playing in his father's band. Before long, playing waltzes and show tunes wasn't getting Stephen off musically, and it was kryptonite to girls his age. As he entered adolescence, he soon set his eyes on more contemporary sounds, forming a proper band with other kids his age. It wasn't long before he'd be joining a local band, the Maniacs, on stage at the barn. During the school year in New York, Stephen was playing drums in The Strangers and singing occasionally with the Dantes, which included Raymond. Stephen became a full-time singer when he decided his band's vocalist wasn't singing badly, but that he could simply do it better. The song that made Stephen a singer? The Beach Boys in My Room. Where the strangers were more aligned with the sound of the Beatles, the Dantes projected a tougher image akin to the Stones. Raymond differentiated the bands. Stephen's father was a classically trained musician. His whole family were classical trained musicians. So, Stephen had a leg up on us. One of the guys in his band, Don Solomon, his partner, was also a gifted pianist and a great singer. They were really good and played more sophisticated music. We played them, the Rolling Stones, and the Pretty Things, that kind of music. It wasn't too difficult to play three or four chord songs with a lot of backbeat and a little guitar work. While at Roosevelt, Stephen had been drumming in The Strangers, but wanted to focus on singing. When he saw drummer Barry Shapiro at a talent show, He immediately recruited him for the band, playing their first show, at least with Barry, opening for the Birds at the Westchester County Center on March 26, 1966. They were planning, at the time, to record their new song, but I don't care. As a review in the Yonkers' Herald-Statesman noted, lead singer Steve Tallarico came on like Mick Jagger of the Stones, bottom lip hanging, tambourine slapping against thigh. This was more like it, and the audience responded. By April, the band had a manager, Peter Agosta, who would help take them up the local and regional ladder. They opened for the Animals at the House of Liverpool in Yonkers on May 9. The strangers, which Stephen has described as a deliberately pretentious name, evolved out of the group discovering there was already an established band in the area with the same name. In June, the band became one of the first two acts signed with Richard Goddard's Sire Productions they'd start recording in August, completing four songs in separate sessions over the period of several weeks. As Peter Stahl recalled and walked this way, The Sun took three weeks to record because Stephen was a perfectionist and drove everybody crazy. He demanded his own mic, which no one had heard of before. The Shape of Things to Come In early October, The Strangers opened for the Lovin' Spoonful at Westchester's County Center. Interestingly, Aerosmith recorded an unused version of that band's On the Road Again during the sessions for their first album a few years later. In early July 1966, they beat out other groups in a Battle of the Bands contest to win a support slot for the Beach Boys at their Iona College performance on July 24. The Staples High School Auditorium in Westport, Connecticut, became a regular haunt for the band, playing their own shows but more importantly opening for the Yardbirds on October 22, 1966. Stephen was a student of the Yardbirds. He told Rolling Stone magazine in 2010, As a singer, the thing I got out of the Yardbirds was that you don't have to have a great voice. It's all about attitude. Keith Ralph wasn't great, but how he sang it made him a master. He was a white boy who pushed it to the max. And he was a great harmonica player. You never heard Jagger hanging out on a single note the way Keith Ralph could. More importantly, Stephen had connected with a hot young concert promoter, Henry Smith, who booked that Yardbirds show and regularly got the band other gigs. While Henry went to work with Jimmy Page on his new project in 1967, the new Yardbirds, a.k.a. Led Zeppelin, he later answered the call from Stephen in 1973 to bring that skill set to Aerosmith. The Strangers band name didn't stick, and they formally became Chain Reaction in late 1966 with the release of their first single on Date Records. If competing with another band named The Strangers was a problem, then perhaps it wasn't noted that there was already a Chain Reaction band recording for Dial Records, and Terry and the Chain Reaction on United Artists. The band continued to work with big-name acts and supported the Beach Boys at the Westchester County Center on April 25, 1967, along with the Buckinghams, Satan's Helpers, and other acts. Winning another battle of the bands, they also supported the Beach Boys at Iona College in July. Over the next year, while they performed plenty of covers, they had also started amassing a number of originals, including the songs Tomorrow's Today and Ordinary Girl. By this time, Stephen had been thrown out of Roosevelt High School. He was among ten students arrested on assorted warrants for marijuana offenses on the evening of March 15, 1967. He was charged with violation of 1751-A of the Penal Code for possession-slash-use of the drug. Following his expulsion, he enrolled in Quintano School for Young Professionals, also attended by Future Dolls, Sylvain Sylvain, John Genzale, Billy Mercier, and other notable alumni such as Mary Weiss, Rick Derringer, and the Left Banks Michael Brown to finish school. The remaining songs recorded in August, September 1966 were released as a Verve Records single in August 1968. These are of more interest to Aerosmith fans now than any ripple in the musical continuum their existence made contemporaneously, but for Steven, they served part of his apprenticeship and provided more experience in the studio. So too did early session work with him ending up on backing vocals on several recordings for the final Left Bank album, including Dark as the Bark, and on Teenage and Future Aerosmith touring keyboard player Mark Radice's 10,000-year-old blues forward slash Three Cheers for the Sad Man single, released in 1968. Oddly, the chain reaction had purportedly also recorded a cover of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for a Stephen Verona art project in 1967. As his musical career stumbled, Stephen continued to find trouble with the law. He, along with Henry Smith and two others, were busted in Miami in May 1968 for possession of marijuana. Chain reaction had come to nothing and ultimately broke up. With chain reaction in the past, all that Stephen was left with was having had a taste of the next level. A very light taste of success, sharing the stage with some of the real stars of the day, and a couple of 45s in the Anchorage jukebox back in Sunapee. It was little more than a tantalizing tease, and not enough. Stephen knew the destination he wanted to reach, but had trouble for the next few years trying to find the right pieces in the Cosmic Musical Jigsaw Puzzle. He became brutal at changing those pieces during his quest. Chain Reaction's keyboard player and Stephen's songwriting partner Don Solomon, was the only holdover for Stephen's next couple of bands. One of these, another link in the proverbial chain, was appropriately named The Chain. This band included another of Stephen and Don's friends from Yonkers, Frankie Ray. The band was performing at the barn as late as August 1, 1969, before splitting up. Stephen, close to giving up on his dream, made another attempt at making it on his own poaching the exquisitely talented Eddie Kistler on piano and vocals and Peter Bover on bass from another band for a new group, Fox Chase. Both had been members of the Nickel Misery, formerly the Sprites, along with Don. Stephen had been making the rounds of the regional club scene scouting talent and certainly invested time and effort in his selective musical pillaging. The result was a band of exceptional quality, the one that would last just seven months, even if they could play the hell out of Pinball Wizard and I Want You, She's So Heavy. The band members attempted to live in cabins at Torrico, writing and rehearsing at the barn during the winter of 1969/70, but frigid conditions forced them into the main house with Stephen's less than thrilled parents. With a plan to play originals, the band performed at regional venues such as Dartmouth College, which Aerosmith also later used as a proving ground early during their career. The group ultimately disbanded due to what Peter described to the Brattleboro Historical Society in 2019 as unrelenting pressure from Stephen robbing the music of fun. At the time, that perfectionism was noted by the Historical Society piece, by Ed Malhoyt, the band's agent, and many other acts, telling another of his bands, they are so tight, and their arrangements are so cool and complicated. Look at this band that is the personification of rock and roll swagger. The musical threat the band posed was illustrated when they opened for the Chicago Transit Authority at Endicott Junior College and were promptly banned opening further shows for them. Finally, there was William Proud, a group that reunited Stephen with Raymond, with the addition of guitarist Dwight Twitty Farron. One of the regular covers in their set, Love Me Two Times, by The Doors, was also later covered by Aerosmith. But playing clubs in Southampton made it clear to Stephen that he was on a downward trajectory and that William Proud was going nowhere. After he allegedly attempted to strangle Twitty for daring to yawn during a rehearsal, he hitchhiked back to Sunapee and saw Joe playing at the barn. But he didn't quite yet know that he needed a true partner in crime. In 1970, Stephen heard from Henry Smith that Jeff Beck was reforming his band and looking for a new vocalist. If he couldn't create a successful group of his own, he might as well audition for someone else's. Stephen recruited several local musicians to help him cut a rough demo of the Beatles' I'm Down to submit for consideration. Those musicians were Tom Hamilton, David Pudge Scott, and Joe Perry. In an interview with Guitar World magazine in 1997, Joe recalled, he, Stephen, asked me and Tom to play on I'm Down for a demo so he could send a vocal to Jeff. We were in a club, and they ran a little woolensack tape recorder. Afterward, Stephen hopped behind the drum kit and jammed with Tom and Joe for the first real time. However, working together in a band at that time had still not progressed past the casual polite suggestion stage, and Stephen returned to mowing the lawns at Trorico. End of Part 1